Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Once upon a time, British Airways was known as the world's favorite airline. Not so anymore. Yet it's remained a highly profitable company. As both low-cost and super-luxury carriers nip at its heels, will BA try to keep passengers happy or shareholders? And there are a lot of leaders out there claiming to speak for the people, promising to deliver what the people want. We take a look at why voters should be wary of the phrase. Often, when it's invoked, it's not in the people's best interests. But first... Last night, as a U.S.-brokered ceasefire expired in northern Syria, a new agreement took its place, hammered out by Russian President Vladimir Putin and his Turkish counterpart Recep Tayyip Erdogan. I would like to express hope that the level of Russian-Turkish relations, which has been recently reached, will play its role in the solution of all complicated issues in the region as of today. It's the latest twist in a frenzy of international negotiations since Turkish forces poured into northern Syria earlier this month. American troops had suddenly pulled back following a hasty decision by the Trump administration that abandoned Syrian Kurdish forces allied to America. Turkey wants to crush those Kurds who took control of the area during Syria's civil war. But there's been international outrage at Turkey's rapid incursion. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad called Mr. Erdogan a thief. Mr. Putin reportedly sat with Mr. Erdogan for six hours at the Russian president's summer residence on the Black Sea before striking a deal that he then shared with Mr. Assad. It's not only in the Middle East where Mr. Putin is flexing his diplomatic and military influence. He's playing a canny game all over the world. Vladimir Putin sitting in his summer residence in Sochi must be feeling pretty good about himself and Russia's place in the world. Arkady Ostrovsky is our Russia editor. Particularly um, if you think where he's come from. Uh, Five years ago, he was a lonely, uh, isolated figure, frozen out uh, from world politics by his own actions. And in Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea, the bringing down of MH17, the West-imposed sanctions kicked him out of G7. He was almost a pariah. And today it looks a very, very different picture. He's receiving Erdogan, the Turkish president, in his Sochi residence, talking about the future of Syria. A delegation of some 40 African leaders are flocking to Sochi to, sh- to shake his hand. And Putin is sitting, if not on top of the world, certainly on top of the castle, certainly at the center stage of world politics. Well, let's start with, with Syria and, and that meeting with Mr. Erdogan. What do we know about the agreement that the two struck? 
So the agreement seems to be, after six hours of negotiations, is that Russian and Turkish troops will take joint control of an area in northern Syria where previously Kurdish forces held sway with the support of the US. This was Kurdish territory until uh, the US withdrew. It basically gives Syria some control of its northern border. And uh, as for the Kurdish fighters, this deal is even more disastrous than the ceasefire that Erdogan agreed with the US last week. And this is a clear strengthening of the Syrian regime. And as as Russia has sort of entered into this as as mediator, where does that now leave America, which was which was kind of in its way stopping things escalating like this? Well, America's um, withdrawal, if you like, from Syria didn't start with uh, President Trump, lamentable as his actions may be. Uh, it started really with Barack Obama, uh, who failed, you know, who first uh, marked the red lines, then failed to uh, to enforce them, creating a vacuum into which Putin walked in, sending his jets bombing not just military but civilian targets, hospitals, keeping Assad going, keeping the war going. Now Putin is playing the role of the sort of great mediator between Turkey and Syria. It's also interesting that Turkey, you know, a country which shot down. Uh, two Russian jets over the Syrian border in 2015 proved to be, for Putin at least, a much more viable counterpart because Putin and Erdogan are two authoritarian leaders who understand force and respect force. What Putin saw in Obama's actions uh, initially and then in Trump is a a signs of weakness. Apart from betraying America's allies, the, the Kurds, it's also a massive miscalculation and misunderstanding of how deterrences work, that you do need to use force for deterrence to be credible. And all actions of the US in Russia's eyes and in the eyes of uh, other players in the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia, uh, have not been credible. So, so what do you mean by that? How do you think the situation in the Middle East and, and Russia's influence in it has, has changed? Well, if if you're sitting in the Middle East, um, you see America uh, abandoning its allies. You see America blowing cold and hot on uh, Iran uh, in its aggression on Saudi Arabia. Uh, You don't know where America stands. You don't know what America is going to do, whether it's going to stand by its allies. In contrast, Putin has shown that he will stand by his clients and, you know, prop them up, come what may. And that, plus the power game, plus the use of force, plus total lack of any qualms about human rights, got him respect, including from Saudi Arabia, America's traditional ally. Uh, When Putin went to Riyadh earlier this month, he got a royal reception. Saudi military band blasting Russian national anthem. Military jets are letting off smoke. The colour of the Russian flag, Putin portraits projected onto its skyscrapers. So he's certainly in a far stronger position in the Middle East than anyone might have imagined in 2015 when he first went to Syria. Uh, it might have been opportunistic. He might have been playing a weak hand, but he played it very effectively. But Mr. Putin's adventurism isn't just limited to, to the Middle East, though, is it? Putin has been very active across the world, not just in the Middle East. He has forged a much closer relationship with China. He has meddled in American elections with uh, with some result. If the if the objective was to disrupt U.S. politics and weaken its institutions, he certainly achieved that. 
But he's also standing to benefit from Trump, who's frankly very often acts as if he's acting in um, concert or in the interest of Vladimir Putin, creating opportunities for him, which Putin is very quick to seize. And now he's even returned to Africa, where the Soviet Union was quite active in the in the 70s, um, supporting various dictators and uh, starting various proxy wars. And Russia is now back in sub-Saharan Africa. Putin is hosting the first summit between Russia and African countries. 40 leaders are supposed to attend. And that story only sort of came into the open in the past two years. And so what's the, the bigger picture here as, as Russia sort of exerts its influence in, in a wider footprint around the world? What do you think the, the larger geopolitical implications are? Look, what, what we can see is that what many countries and leaders described as Putin's adventurism and opportunistic moves in the world have been converted into at least sort of short-term geopolitical gains for Russia. It's a very good lesson to the Western leaders about what happens when you create vacuum. And, you know, there is a lesson for the West uh, is that it should be careful about racking its foreign policy about abandoning its allies. And in that sense, it must, you know, it should take lessons from Putin. But it should also remember that Putin is not equal to Russian people. It should differentiate between the Kremlin and Russia uh, as a country. Uh, so I'm afraid these are not very new policies. It's just the West has forgotten them. Akari, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. British Airways once advertised itself as the world's favorite airline. Over the last two years, everyone at British Airways has been trained in the art of putting people first. But after recent setbacks, including pilot strikes and an IT meltdown that caused severe disruption, the reputation of the airline has been damaged. In 2017, in an annual ranking of passenger satisfaction by Skytrax, BA came in 41st place. BA celebrates its centenary this year. It traces its history back to a flight in 1919 when one paying passenger went to Paris on, a, I think, a biplane with several grouse and some clotted cream in the hold. Simon Wright is The Economist's industry editor. But you might look back to 1924 as a sort of a, a better evocation of BA's past in the sense that Imperial Airlines was created by the British government to sort of glue the empire together as the Royal Navy wound down that role. And the very first thing that happened to Imperial Airways is its pilots went on strike. And this year, BA also suffered its first pilot strike. One of the reasons the pilots gave, paying conditions, of course, was part of the reason, but the other reason they gave was the dumbing down of British Airways. What do you mean by that? 
Well, what's happened to British Airways over the past decade or so is that it's been attacked on two fronts. One, low-cost airlines in Europe have eaten into its short-haul routes. And these short-haul routes are very important because they feed the long-haul traffic from Heathrow, which is the most lucrative part of their business. And at the same time, the Gulf Airlines and airlines such as Singapore and Cathay have come along and taken the crown that BA once had of the world's favourite airline. If you look at some of the reports on its reputation, it's sunk quite a long way down. And that's partly because of the cost-cutting and partly skimping on investment on things like IT. It's had IT meltdowns that have caused disruptions. It's had data leaks, which it's been fined for. And at the same time, it's done things which uh, were necessary to compete with low-cost airlines, such as charging for seat allocation, baggage, onboard meals, the kind of things it had to do, but the sort of things that also irked passengers. And so the pilots weren't just complaining about pay, they were essentially complaining on, on behalf of the passengers that they were getting a raw deal. Yes, I think that's right. BA's image has sort of suffered from all of this. But the strange thing is, although its reputation has sunk, it's remained incredibly profitable. Well, I mean, that makes sense. If, if there has been a bunch of penny pinching, then those pennies had to go somewhere. Certainly, that's one of the reasons. But a bigger reason is because BA is in a very useful position. As one analyst put it to me, it may not be the world's favourite airline anymore, but it's certainly the world's most favourably placed. Heathrow is at the centre of one of the world's biggest aviation markets. 80 million passengers go through Heathrow every year, and BA has a stranglehold on Heathrow. What do you mean by stranglehold? It has over half the takeoff and landing slots at Heathrow allotted to it. And if you include IAG, the firm formed with the merger with Iberia in 2011, which now includes Ireland's Aer Lingus and a couple of low-cost airlines, it has 55% of those slots. That allows it to do two things. One, some of the routes are monopoly routes that no one else can fly to. And secondly, it also allows it to dominate the incredibly lucrative transatlantic market to North America. Something like half the flights between London and New York are run by BA and its joint venture partner, American Airlines. And a lot of those traffic across the Atlantic is dominated by three airline groups, of which BA is a member of one. And they really are not interested in competing on price. So how is it that BA maintains that stranglehold on those slots if those are, in fact, the route to better profitability? The legal ownership of slots is very, very murky, but usership is fairly well entrenched. You can keep a slot if you use it for 80% of the previous year. These are governed by IATA, the uh, trade body have drawn up guidelines, but also they've been written into EU regulations. That, of course, in one way, gives airlines certainty for long-term investment, but also has allowed BA to entrench its position. And do you see that entrenchment changing? It would be very difficult for BA's position to be challenged at the moment. But there is some light at the end of the tunnel for airlines that might want to challenge BA at Heathrow. And a third runway is planned. That would increase capacity by 50% or slightly more. There would be 350 new slots created by the new runway. Now, the current rules for allocating those slots would have it that half would go to new entrants and then half would be doled out in proportion to the slots that incumbents already have, which wouldn't really do much to dent BA's stranglehold. I mean, BA itself, I think in private would rather there was no third runway built at all. It would like to keep its hold on Heathrow. But there are other airlines knocking at the door, particularly Virgin Atlantic, who would like to create another hub airline at Heathrow. And a hub airline is one that has enough feed from short-haul routes to maintain a a long-haul network. To do that, the British government would need to do something about the slot allocation system. I mean, it could be justified in doing so. The system was created in the 1970s for the benefit of incumbent state-owned airlines, and it was meant to deal with small incremental additions of slots, not a big slug of new slots. So there might be some justification for doing that, and they probably should do. The way to bring proper competition to BA at Heathrow is to create another hub airline. 
And without prejudice to the slot allocation question, BA seems to be struggling between whether to aim to make passengers happier or to make shareholders happier. How do you see that playing out now that they find themselves in this less loved position as far as passengers go, but perfectly fine as far as shareholders go? I think BA will sort of try and do both. They are certainly starting to invest more money in new planes. Their fleet is fairly aging compared to some of the newer low-cost airlines such as Ryanair and EasyJet. But at the same time, they have to keep shareholders happy as well. And to do that, I think keeping their grip on Heathrow is one of the things that will ensure that they're profitable for the long term. But do you think either way, BA may have lost its sort of mantle of the luxury carrier forever? I think so. I think it'll be very hard to get up to the level of the Gulf carriers or Singapore or Cathay again, and it's still going to have to fight the fight with the low-cost carriers in Europe. So I think it's just going to have to settle on the cruising altitude that's a little bit lower than it used to be in the past. Thanks very much for coming in, Simon. My pleasure. America's Constitution has a lot to answer for. Ever since its preamble declared, we the people, the people, whomever that means, has been one of the favorite invocations of politicians. Many in Congress seem ready to throw in the towel. That would be a disservice to the American people. People in the UK voted for our country to have a new and different relationship with Europe. We're the people who sundered a nation rather than allow a sin called slavery. That timeless creed that sums up the spirit of the American people in three simple words, yes, we can. Thank you, South Carolina. But it's not just a reminder of the electorate. More and more, invoking the phrase, the people, is something to be wary of. The word people represents a simplistic view of democracy. Emma Duncan is a senior editor at The Economist. You can see some of the ways that the word is abused when you look at the way it's used. So the Democratic People's Republic of Korea is probably the most unpopular nation state that there's ever been in the history of the world. The People's Movement for the Liberation of Angola was essentially a political party designed to liberate the assets of Angola for its rulers. I mean, there are many, many instances of absurd and ironic uses of this word. And I started to get worried about it because I heard it increasingly creeping into the rhetoric of politicians in countries where it hasn't been that much used. Well, how do you tell what you would call a uh, a good and fair and proper use of the word people from what you would call a worrying one? Now, this is a very reasonable question because people is um, often used by perfectly non-abusive politicians in non-abusive situations. So Emmanuel Macron talks about his mandat du peuple. Ce mandat du peuple français, donc. And the responsibilities that, that, it, uh, that it confers upon him. And I think you need to distinguish that from where the people are being weaponized, in effect, against an enemy of some sort. Such as? Give me an example. Well, sometimes it's a foreign enemy. So Hugo Chavez often called on the people to resist the empire. Imperio Yankee, go home. But the most worrying use in in the West and the growing use here, I would say, is where it's being weaponized against institutions like the legislature, the courts, the media, basically any institution 
whoever is using the term finds is standing in their way. I mean, why would you call that a, a, a dangerous rhetorical device, though? I mean, this is, this is just whipping up the will of, dare I say it, the people in the way that politicians have always done. Yeah, that's right. But why I think it's dangerous is that it implies that democracy lies in this pure relationship between a leader and the people out there. And actually, democracy is much more complex than that. Democracy is a whole set of institutions which need to fit together and to bolster each other to deliver a decent form of government. This is a hoax. This is the greatest hoax. This is and it's those institutions which people like Donald Trump... Uh, this is a uh, fraudulent crime on the American people. But and Boris Johnson at the moment. I think it will be very difficult in the end for for colleagues in, in Parliament to obstruct the will of the people. And, and also leaders in Eastern Europe uh, are targeting because they are somehow hampering the leaders in whatever it is they're trying to do. And I would argue that by trying to mobilise public opinion against those institutions, these leaders are endangering the form of government that their countries have and that their countries need to be strong. And you think that this this danger goes further than than uh, merely shaking faith in institutions? So many weird things have happened in our polities in recent years that I think you have to be able to imagine that they're going to get weirder and worse. And so when you have, for instance, the Conservative Party chairman in Britain saying that if the people were denied Brexit, they would, quote, look at other ways of initiating change, then I think you have to be faintly concerned. The Mexican president recently declared to journalists in a way that I find quite ominous, I believe not only that you're good journalists, but that you're also prudent. And if you cross the line, well... You know what happens, right? But it's not me, it's the people. And that sounded to me like a threat of extra-constitutional action if the people were frustrated in the will that these leaders are deriving from them. So, yeah, I think this stuff has a whiff of danger in it. So... In short, an otherwise innocuous word we should be a little suspicious of now. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that I would simply warn that people want to keep their ears open for the use of this stuff and not be suckered by politicians into believing that democracy is something very simple when it's actually something very multi-layered and complex. Emma, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.